Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is a show all about saving the best and burning the rest. Absolutely. And today we have a very special episode uh, brought to you by McDonald's. No, it's not really. I wish. Um, <laughs> no, but, uh, but if you've been paying attention to our podcast for the past oh, couple of months, um, yep. you'll notice that we did a series of three-part series on finding grace in the Old Testament. And uh, we, we, yeah, we wanted to just do three part and wrap a little bow on it. But then we received a bunch of questions yeah. on the, um, yeah, on the topic. And then we put out our feelers to see if there were any more. And yeah, there were some really cool questions that came through that we wanted to answer and address. So we thought in this episode it'd be fun to just go over some of those questions that we got and do a little follow up to our Grace in the Old Testament series. Yeah. So um, we just wanted to let you know before we get into this. You know, you would have picked up. Uh, any series that we've really done on biblical theology or anything like that, um, especially this one, uh, we are not biblical scholars. Like, you know, we have just done our undergraduate in um, in ministry and theology. So that is the extent of our formal education and anything beyond that has been mostly pastoral in nature. So like both of us are huge Bible nerds, but we're definitely Bible nerds with um sort of less than master's doctoral level experience as much as like, I don't know, I, I've been feeling like I really want to dig into this a little bit more and and go the higher education route, but we're not there just yet. So all that being said, um, our discussion today is definitely going to be more around the pastoral um, aspect and We've got commentaries, we've got some sources, we've got some good resources that we want to share with you guys. But um, yeah, that's just to say up the front because, you know, I, I feel like when it comes to answering some of these questions, um, some of them are, are pretty tough and we, we've really we've really kind of agonized over some of these questions as well. I don't know about you, Josh. Yeah, we ended up putting this episode off for a little bit because we wanted to actually go over the questions a bit deeper and we wanted to revisit some of the answers we initially had because we didn't, yeah, I don't know. So yeah, yeah we've, we've done a bit of wrestling with these. I still don't think we have the, the definitive answers, but we've got some stuff that we think works for us at least and we yeah. can share that. And yeah, I don't know. We get feedback from people. Maybe it'll change our answers. I don't know, yeah. but, we're, but we're still learning and growing and this has been great for us to do that yeah and i think that's the key that's the key theme for this episode is that we don't have all the answers and we're 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 trying to be okay with that um as much as it is not in our pastoral nature to be able to admit that there does come a point where you just have to say we don't have the answers for everything uh would love to would love to have more insight on some of these topics um so nice yeah. So until that that day occurs, um, this is where we stand. So you never know. We might revisit this a couple of years down the track, and we might have completely grown in this area. But I just wanted to put that disclaimer right at the top of the episode because um, there's some really interesting stuff that we're going to cover. Um, but yeah, that's just where we are right now. So mm. yeah, yeah. No, oh, that's yeah. awesome. Uh, but before we get into it, obviously, we have to do the highlight of the whole podcast. Like, 
Sorry, sorry. That feels overhyping it. But we're going to do the question of the week. My question for this week is what is your favorite season? I know there's only four, so the answers are pretty limited. Um, and that's okay, you know, but this is a good one. We really want to hear our audience response as well. You just tell us what your favorite season is. Maybe we all have the favorite, our, the same favorite season. That would be great. Then we can all talk about it and just share around it. Now, the reason I'm asking this is because the other day I was walking my cat, as you do, because I don't have a dog to walk. So I walk my cat, Nora, and she's getting good at walking, which is great. Um, and by that, I mean, she's getting good at leading me places and I just have to do whatever she wants to do, whether it's stop. So she was taking you for a walk then. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and, um, anyway, we're walking around my cul-de-sac and uh, we came around the other side and all of a sudden we were just under this really great, beautiful, I don't know, what, like gold tree pretty much. And okay. leaves were slowly falling off because there was a slight breeze. And the leaves were falling down and Nora was like trying to catch them in the air and stuff and nibble them. It was really cute. And um, and I was like, and I was just looking around and I'm like, wow, I love autumn. It's a great, it's a, it's, it's my favorite season, at least at the moment in life. I'm pretty sure my favorite season used to be summer, mm. maybe even used to be spring at one stage. But right now my favorite season, season is autumn. It's really nice. I like what the clothes I wear because it's not too hot, not too cold. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just a great time of year. Yeah. Yeah. I have to agree with you, man. I think autumn is probably probably the best season. Like, I don't even know if this is a conversation about what your favorite season is. I just feel like this is that autumn is the best season. I, I don't know. But I feel like it would be I feel like it would also be um, a little bit uh, boring if I just picked the same thing as you. So I'll say <laughs> if I had to do if I had to do a close second, I'll go winter. I'll go the probably the least the least popular season everybody seems to hate winter i, I don't know yeah. i'm i'm not a big winter i mean i feel like i'd like winter more if we had street level snow kind of thing uh, maybe i don't know i've never lived in snow so i don't really know if i'd like it but it looks yeah. cool at least i i used to live in this um area when i was growing up we lived in um a place called ben braggy which was a property on top of a, a mountain range the uh, great dividing range and it was about 750 meters above sea level. So there was one time I remember as a kid, we got snow uh, at the property where we were living. And uh, one day, one day only, um, it's never wow. really happened again. Um, not to me that at least. That does not happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen at all. No, no. Like I, I remember growing up, there would always be sort of snow maybe around Goulburn or snow sort of in the mountain ranges above Canberra, but never in our area. But yeah, no, one day we did and it was great. Uh, school was off, work was off. Everybody was just, you know, having a great time. We sledded down the hills. Uh, we built snowmen, snow fights. It was literally like a, an idyllic childhood winter wonderland. It was amazing. That is so cool. Yeah. I've never experienced something like that. I've really only ever been to the snow when I was like eight. So <laughs> I feel like that's a pretty that's a pretty average experience for an Australian because I I didn't really experience snow until about the same age and it was very few and far in between. Um, hmm. Yeah, Australia is known for its sand, not its snow. So, yeah. but um, yeah. What what season did you get married in? Uh, I got married in autumn. I got married in April, April fourteenth. Um, oh, so nice. yeah, we uh, my wife and I got married underneath a golden elm which was uh shedding its leaves or about to shed its leaves so that was a 
really, really lovely experience outside of Canberra. So, uh, yeah, what about you? Actually, yeah, I was just thinking, I've, I've seen your wedding photos. They are very, like, autumn-y. It looks really nice. I've yeah. Just, just remembered. We, yeah. we, got, we got the most perfect day. It was so good. There was, like, not that many clouds in the sky, which wasn't that great for the photographer. Um, probably would have <laughs> preferred a few more clouds in the sky for the natural um, diffusion. But, uh, mm. yeah, it was beautiful weather. It was, yeah, just incredible. Which That's is not awesome. something, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we got we got married in autumn as well, um, but it felt like it felt like summer. <laughs> oh, true, because it was yeah, it was still hot, but it wasn't it wasn't like you know like some weddings like forty degrees Celsius. Yeah, um, but yeah, and it still looks very summery in all the photos and everything. Yeah, um, but yeah, the, it was the thing. Uh, the thing I don't like about Australian weddings, especially everybody who chooses to get married in December, December January, January, which. Yep. Look, I get why people do that, but it still annoys me is I've been to so many weddings where it's like a 40 degree day and, you know, if you're the bride, you're wearing probably a fairly heavy dress. And if you're the groom, you're wearing like a black or a blue or a brown suit. That stuff is hot, man. And if you're a guest, I get most Australians now, we just kind of wear a pair of dress pants and a shirt and kind of that's it. But yeah. if you're married to a Mauritian, which I am, <laughs> she will make you wear a suit because it's island culture. And I understand, yep. but it's still on a 40 degree day. It's not fair. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've always been intrigued by like the traditional weddings in like traditional dress weddings in yep. December, January. I mean, they, they look quite nice photos and stuff, but... Man, I don't know how the guys... Do. I mean, whenever I've been like a groomsman or something for a wedding like that and I'm in a full suit, I'm like dying, let alone the guy who has to be talking and is like the eye... Like nobody's really looking at the groomsman at a wedding. So, yeah. you know, you're not really under that much pressure. But then there's a guy who's like out taking photos all day and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how they do it. Yep. I mean, I think there's a reason why so many like um, African-American preachers literally have like a tea towel on their shoulder while they're <laughs> preaching so they can wipe their brow the whole time. Like it's just ridiculous. It's true. When you're preaching in a full suit, I mean, I never wear a full suit to church, so I don't know what that's like. Yeah. But preaching in a full suit, going hard, it works up a sweat. I mean, oh, just yeah. preaching not in a suit, going hard, works up a pretty <laughs> good sweat for me. Honestly, I'm I'm covered by the end of my sermons. Yeah. I yeah. I actively avoid people hugging me or whatever after. Yep. Uh, I mean, I'm going to actively avoid it now because of this flipping COVID-19. <laughs> I'm never going to hug a person ever again, I don't think, but uh, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's an- another benefit of autumn. Preaching in autumn feels much better. True. True mm. that. True you're not, that. You're not like wearing like a jumper or something like in winter, so you're not working up a sweat, but you're also not like the building's not like super hot. I don't know. I don't autumn, like preaching in, in December, January. I, I really don't, especially if it's at a traditional church. Nothing against traditional churches, but you have to wear a dress code, you know, and most churches, let's be honest, don't have the best ventilation. So you're going to work <laughs> up a sweat and it's going to be awkward and it's going to be annoying. Uh, uh, I just feel sorry. Preacher problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So that is why, everybody, our favourite season is autumn. What's yep. yours? We'd love to know. Hundred <laughs> percent. Better the be autumn. People come here for. Yeah. All, right. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's go to let's go to our question response because I feel like this is going to be this is going to be a juicy episode, my friend. Oh yeah, I'm excited. Um. So yeah, we reached out. Uh, well, actually, we didn't even reach out to begin with. We just 
I think we just said if people have any questions, let us know in the original episodes. And we got one or two emails and then we reached out on our socials, uh, mostly Instagram, and um, some good questions came in. So uh, I guess in no particular order, we're just going to tackle them uh, one at a time. So yep. might be good to start with some some easier and we haven't included all the questions. We shouldn't no. say that. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've got limited time. So yeah. that's just the reality of it. But we're having a good go at it. Definitely yeah. most of them. Yeah. Right. Cool. Um, okay. So this is from Live, Live Life Full and Free, excuse me, Life Full and Free on Instagram. And Life Full and Free says, say God's response is just, but not gracious. Is this problematic? I love that 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 term. It's like such a this is such a <laughs> 2010s word. Is it problematic? <laughs> I'm thinking of the, I was thinking of like the I don't know why the first thing that came to my 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 mind is that you know the butterfly meme. Is this problematic? But I don't know why. <laughs> I feel like are we going to cancel God? Like is this, you know? <laughs> no, it's a good it is a good question though. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting question. I think I would like it's it's one that I would like to talk about because I'm not sure I don't know. Maybe I need a bit more clarification because I don't know if it's mm. if you've seen areas in in scripture or in life where this is true, or if this is meant to just be purely hypothetical. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely feel that because I think, I think possibly where part of this is coming from is um, maybe reading the Bible a certain way. Uh, I know that certain faith traditions or certain flavors of Christianity definitely emphasize one over the other. Um, you know, one might emphasize God's justice and his fairness and another might emphasize his grace. Or maybe during a part of your life or a, a season of your life, you might need more of God's grace or might, you might want more of God's justice depending on where you're at um, spiritually. But I think, I mean, fundamentally, you can't, you can't divest the two of each other. Like they have to come together. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it's um, intrinsically entwined into like the character of God that yeah. he is both just and graceful um, and gracious is probably a better word. Yeah. Um, obviously there's other characteristics in there too, but those two are like, I don't know, they're constant, but there are definitely stories in, in, in the scripture like throughout the Bible where maybe you see more of his grace or you mm. see more of his justice. Yeah. But I think part of what we were doing in the Old Testament series too was sharing like around all those stories, it always seems to be both. Yeah. 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 Mm. They're not always both easy to see. No, it's not. And, and you know, we talked about this many times in the series, but we have such a 21st century perspective when <laughs> reading these stories and that can often cloud like the actual intent that the author is trying to convey. And, yeah. and certainly, you know, God's character um, can shine through more positively in certain instances and not so much in others. So I, I guess to answer your question, life full and free, um, I, I don't think that God's response to people, to, you know, political situations, especially as we read in the Bible, I don't, I don't think they can be all just or all gracious and I think as well, those terms are very loaded because you might see justice <laughs> yeah. as getting what you deserve. Um, 
and you might see grace as being sort of just allowing somebody to just do what they want without any consequences. Like I think it's all in the interpretation of like how do you define these words? Um, and it might sound cliche and it might sound pastoral, but I think ultimately you have to try and figure out what God's definition of those two words are and we can only see that in the way that he conducts himself through the pages of scripture. Mm, true. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I yeah, I, again, I don't think there is any times in scripture where, where there is one without the other, where there is like God's response is just but not gracious. I don't think that ever happens. Yeah. But that's in the reading I've done. Maybe I've, missed something which you know is definitely not unlikely so <laughs> um, yeah definitely open to, to hearing if there are people who maybe think there are responses yeah. where god is only just and not gracious um yeah. and yeah uh, but i think okay i guess if we were going to be hypothetical and say there was a real like a modern day a modern day story of a god encounter and it was purely just and not gracious I'm going to say would be problematic, I think, because that would mean that one part of his character wasn't displayed in his actions. Yep. And maybe the opposite of his character. I don't know. Yeah. So I guess to answer your question, then, then yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it would it would be problematic. But yeah. In the same way, it would be problematic if all of a sudden Earth was teleported a lot, you know, inside the sun. That would it definitely, definitely would, be, <laughs> yeah, it would be a problem. But it's, yeah. it's it's hypothetical. Like it's not, yeah. it's not something we can see happening right now. But if it did happen, yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't a very good example, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's definitely something that we could all get on board with. That we don't want that to happen. So no, we don't want to be inside the sun. But no, good question though. I think it, it definitely made me think, and I, I'm interested. Like if if we didn't answer it right, feel free to reach out and share with us if you think. Yeah, there are stories in which that does happen, and yeah, maybe. Yeah, and if you have a specific, like, if you're re asking this question from a specific place, um, we'd love to know what what that place what that place is. Um, mm. Yeah, so cool. All right, um, our next question comes from Kex ninety one, which is just the most memeable um, username. Um, <laughs> God God seems not to give Moses's Pharaoh grace in Egypt. It even says multiple times that he hardens his heart. What was that all about? Um, great question. Great question indeed. Um, so we will link in the show notes. There's actually a really great Bible project blog post that directly addresses this. Um, so to save you from us just like literally reading it word for word. We'll, we'll link that and we'll kind of just reference it. Um, but uh, Josh, did you have any initial thoughts before we get into the the, the blog post? Nope. No, the blog post honestly covers it really well. Cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guys, if you don't listen to the Bible Project podcast, then you are seriously missing out. Um, this is some of where we get some of our best ideas and inspiration from, and they are just awesome. So um, in this blog post, um, the, the author, which actually I'm just going to quickly check who the author of this particular blog post is. I don't even know if it says. It's who. Tim Mackey. Oh, it's Tim. Okay, cool. So yeah, so Tim Tim talks about 
how in the beginning um, the way that the story is portrayed, it doesn't actually give a name for Pharaoh. We just know Pharaoh. It's In fact, the, the subtitle is Pharaoh with a capital P. Um, now, there have been numerous scholarly attempts and archaeological attempts to try and figure out what time period this story happens in, um, who may have been the pharaoh. Um, There have been a number of guesses and um, estimates about who the pharaoh may have been. Uh, And there's a good number of people who doubt whether the story literally happened the way that we see it here. But in any case, the author is not wanting to draw our attention to the fact that you know, this was a literal historical figure and here he was and this is his history. Like, that's not the author's trying to achieve here. The author is trying to achieve um, a sort of typological sort of story of um, throughout the whole uh, biblical narrative, there are these types and antitypes and there are these themes that kind of crop up. Um, and one of the biggest themes is this theme of Babylon. And we actually talked about this in our Revelation series, how Babylon is not necessarily just a, an ancient civilization from the uh, cradle of civilization, sort of you know Near East sort of area, but it's actually like a symbol. Um, and in fact, I believe the Bible Project does a podcast series on either, it's either Babylon or it's in their Day of the Lord um, series that they did it last year or the year before. Um, Yeah, I can't remember. But they talk about Babylon a fair bit, um, which really informed my understanding of what Babylon is because, like, in the SDA tradition, we talk about Babylon a lot, but we only talk about Babylon in the sense of, like, you know, the the religious political power that's going to make us all go to church on Sunday and it's going to put us in jail if we don't. Like, that's sort of, you know, that's that's our understanding of Babylon. Um, But... The author of, um, of, of of this story actually goes in and assigns the role of Babylon to Pharaoh and Egypt. And he makes Pharaoh out to be a, a kind of Babylon. And if you didn't listen to our series on um, Revelation, three angels, messages. three angels messages, yeah, if you haven't listened to them, go and give them a listen. But um, basically to summarize this idea of Babylon, it's any sort of political, spiritual force that... Uh, uses the threat of death and violence to assert its political power. Um, mm. Essentially, Pharaoh is like a—he's like the 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 extreme example of what happens when evil goes unchecked yeah. and 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 like goes to its full extreme. Like he becomes this um, domineering, controlling, and like even when Moses first goes and asks about the slaves being set free. He reacts by like treating the slaves worse. Yeah. So it's this like picture of like total corruption. Um, yeah. Is what the Pharaoh that's that's like how he how he's painted. And it's also a picture of rebellion because yeah. the, the core power struggle in Exodus is the power struggle between the gods of Egypt and the god of the, the Jews. Um and you know, we see this in the Ten Plagues. Um, if you know much about the Ten Plagues, you'll know that um the symbolic uh, meaning behind the ten plagues is actually um, Yahweh God uh, demonstrating His superiority over the Egyptian um, divine hierarchy um, in controlling the elements and the animals and you know all these sorts of things. So um, ultimately, Pharaoh is the figurehead that kind of represents the Egyptian um, 
whatchamacallit, you know, hierarchy of gods. And Moses is the figurehead that represents Yahweh. And these two go head to head as sort of the divine, the divine representatives um, uh, in this battle to, to, to figure out whose God is superior uh, over the other. So hmm. what has this got to do with uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, the, the trouble in the translation is that the word, the Hebrew verb that is used for the, the idea of becoming hard, um, you'll see in the article it's pronounced kazak. Um, it's, it's not a passive verb and it doesn't indicate who is initiating the action. In fact, Tim talks about how it's called a stative verb, meaning it doesn't say whether it's Pharaoh or God. So the problem in translation is that certain translators have rendered Kazakh as Pharaoh's heart became hard in some specific circumstances. And we see this uh, 10 times. Um, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard 10 times. And certain translators will translate it, um, Pharaoh's heart became hard. And then in another situation, they'll go, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So there's a little bit of translation ambiguity in the text and um, certain biblical scholars have chosen to translate one way and others have chosen to translate another way. Some of them have chosen to translate um, differently, so not all like the same way across every every instance. Um, so if you were to follow that, that logical progression, um, you'll see that, for instance, in the NIV, I think is the uh, translation that Tim uses, You'll see in the first five, um, Pharaoh's heart was hardened on his own. That's how the NIV translators will translate it. You'll see then in, in, in uh, number six, the boils that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then you'll see that in the hail, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In the locust, God announces that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart. The darkness, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then in the death of the firstborn, the final plague that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So six out of the 10 times Pharaoh hardens his heart and four out of the 10 times God is the one who is um, indicted in, in, in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Um, mm. So what are we to make of all this? Um, first of all, um, it seems that God is, well, he, goes, he goes very early on, he tells Moses that um, Pharaoh's heart is going to become hard. He actually predicts to Moses that um, Pharaoh is a hard man, that he will harden his heart and that he will resist um, God's call for him to humble himself, essentially to submit himself to God's authority and to let the Hebrews go. So the first five times, uh, Pharaoh is the one who hardens his own heart. And then from there, sort of it changes. Sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Um, and again, this ambiguous verb is used. Um, and the story kind of portrays this idea of the, the, the Babylonian rebellion, as it were, the Babylon-like rebellion that Pharaoh is engaging himself in. God is throughout this entire time, reaching out to Pharaoh. He is 
trying to convince Pharaoh to humble himself. He's trying to convince Pharaoh to um, come back to the, uh, the the wisdom of God, I suppose, to you know seek mercy and justice. The same call that you know God asks Israel to do later on when they become a nation. But Pharaoh continually um, continually ignores that call. And then you have the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I think one of the interesting ways that we see this, we render it and we almost kind of assume that does Pharaoh suddenly become like a neutral person to the point where God has to actually make the hardening happen himself? And I think that's maybe the the reason why we have an issue with this because if we see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, that kind of implies that maybe Pharaoh hadn't make, made up his mind or that, you know, he could have gone either way and that God actually steps in to intervene um, to go make Pharaoh go one way. But I don't think that the story supports that. Um, the story, at least in my mind, supports this idea that Whatever evil or hardness of heart is going that's going on in Pharaoh's in Pharaoh's mind during the story, it was already there. It was developed, it was propagated over a long period of time. And we're just seeing the fruit of Pharaoh's heart now. So maybe it's that God is in some ways playing with Pharaoh, that that he's giving him a subtle push. Um, knowing what is already going on in Pharaoh's heart and that maybe God could be using what's already there, the evilness, the stubbornness, the pride, the arrogance, the self-importance, all that sort of stuff that we see Pharaoh kind of exude out of the story. Maybe God is using that, those same things, the hubris of Pharaoh perhaps, against him, in the story. Um, I, I got some more thoughts on that, but yeah, Josh, any, any thoughts uh, about that initially? I've been going a while. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Um, yeah, no, I think, um, oh, I think the fear comes, I, maybe people, people get a bit scared and, and maybe lean into a Calvinist approach that they're not comfortable with. Cause they're like, Oh, if God's controlling his heart and forcing him to not choose it, like, does that make God sadistic or does that make it so that God is the one who chooses who is saved and who's not? Um, yeah, yeah. You have to look at the story under, yeah, I guess with a, with a bit of a, a deeper lens, which is kind of difficult. Um, and that's why it's really good to have articles like this that are really well written and, and well researched that you can, that anyone can look into. Um, so I would honestly encourage everybody to take the time to read it. It's not that long. Um, yep. and it's really easy to read, but it, um, I think that that's kind of the way God lets our own choices play out. And I think that's the reality that you saw his heart hardening before God did anything really. Mm. Like you saw his heart seem to be hard the moment there was even an asking for the slaves to be freed. Like he liked what he had become and he liked what he had created for himself. He liked having these slaves. Um, and so I think it's it's quite telling then that obviously the first six um, six plagues, he's just hardening his own heart. And then after that, it's all of a sudden God 
seems to be involved in it. Um, and exactly what that looks like, I don't know. <laughs> mm. But I, again, I love, um, I think I've brought it up here before, but there's the Puritan saying, and it says the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And I think everybody has different reactions to to how, I, yeah, I guess everybody reacts to God differently. And even in, in your different stages of life, you can your heart can be reacting more like ice where the love of God just melts away the the fortress around your heart and changes you or you have times when it's like God's trying to work in you and you're just hardening your heart and it's like that clay is just getting harder and harder and it's you know mm. like I'm, I've been in those seasons I've met people in those seasons where they see this incredible move of God and their heart grows harder to it instead of growing softer or, or vice versa so mm. I think ultimately that's what this this story is is very telling of that the human heart is a, is a really funny and strange thing. And um, there's a danger to, again, like I mentioned before, when when an evil nature goes unchecked like that and it just keeps growing and growing and growing until you amount to this thing where, like, God is raining down hail that's breaking apart everything and he's still like, no, nah, not going to do it. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's ridiculous. He's so attached to his power that literally the God of the universe is doing these things and he's not... I don't know. Yeah, it yeah. seems it's a crazy story to read because you'd think after the first two plagues, anybody would be like, "Yeah, okay, you know what? Let's just let's just call it a day there. You can have." Them. But he doesn't. He's holding on and getting harder and harder and harder about it. Yeah, it's an, it's it's a pretty interesting. It's an interesting story to look deeper into. Yeah, I think I think more than anything, it, it poses some really deep philosophical questions, as you've just illustrated, Josh. Um, and I'll say just in closing, I think. I think what God is doing here is he's almost doing like a jujitsu move on Pharaoh. Um, yeah. You know, like jujitsu is like this martial art where the whole point is to use your opponent's strength against them. And that's exactly what God does to, to Pharaoh here. He actually uses the characteristics of Pharaoh and the power and the authority and the resources. He uses all of that against Pharaoh. Um, and he proves that everything that Pharaoh trusts in um, is ultimately built on a, a really flimsy foundation, um, and, and this is this is what God does. You know, we see this in Christ in the New Testament. You know, when Paul is writing to the church, um, I don't know, I don't have the reference on me right now, but he actually talks about how um, Jesus, through his death, actually made a public display of the powers of darkness. How he humiliated the powers of darkness through the act of dying on a cross. That that act of sacrifice, which in the eyes of the Romans and the Jews and the world and certainly the powers of darkness, it's weakness and it's uh, a defeat. He uses the ultimate defeat as the ultimate victory. Um, and that's what God thats what God does. And that's what God does to Pharaoh. He uses all of um, Pharaoh's resources and his hubris against him to ultimately destroy him um, and I, so I think it's it's in some ways it's a judo it's a jujitsu move, um, but it's also I think a, ca a cautionary tale of what happens when we stray so far from the wisdom of God that uh, we become a self-destructive force, and ultimately um, Pharaoh becomes a self-destructive force. And I think I think this is why in the story we don't see Pharaoh's underlings that much. We don't see his generals and his officers and his, you know, and his magicians 
in outside of their role of being subservient to Pharaoh because I think we're actually supposed to feel sad and sorry for the Egyptian nation. Um, many of them actually end up joining the Israelites. Uh, so, you know, God actually has mercy on the Egyptian nation uh, even while its ruler is driving it into the ground. So, mm. yeah, deep philosophical th- questions in that story. Yeah, cool. Uh, I'm pretty happy with that then. Are you happy with that? Yeah. For that question? Yep. Hope yep. that answers your questions. Kex, your question, Kex, Kex91. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, our next uh, question comes from an absolute legend, Jared Troy on Instagram. Is this Jared um, your brother-in-law? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think David responded differently to Grace than other notable characters of the Old Testament? If so, why? Mm. Interesting um, question. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't. It's hard to. It's hard to say. Mainly, I think the reason it's hard to say is because David is a really, really significant figure in Israel's history. Being the first king of Israel. Oh, sorry, the not the first king, but like the the um, I don't know, archetype king. Of, yeah, of he's almost like, like a messianic figure, like a Moses or an Abraham. Yeah, because there was the first king. There was there was Saul, but Saul yeah. ended up a bit dodgy, and then David came, and he was just like infinitely better, and everyone was like, "Yeah, David!" Like, so yeah. he was like the real champion. Um, and obviously, there's the whole story of like him beating Goliath and that kind of thing. So he's he kind of has this legendary status. I don't know if it's like more so than other old, definitely more so than some Old Testament characters. Maybe more so than most, probably more so than most, but I don't know, like Abraham's also quite significant. Yeah. Like there are a few other really significant ones. So it's, but David, there seems to be heaps written about him, but also you get like the Psalms as well. So you see mm. a lot more of his inner wrestle, mm-hmm. whereas you don't get that with, I don't think really any others, um, except maybe Solomon. So um, I don't know. There's, it's an interesting, he's a very interesting character. And so I think we get a lot more, we get a lot more depth and nuances to David's character than when we get for most other Old Testament characters. So it's hard mm. to say if he, if his response was unique, mm. um, but it definitely appears that way in the reading of the Bible, I think. And that's probably done on purpose. Probably. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, he definitely had a very deep response to grace, which I have a, I have my reasoning for why I think that is, but I don't know, Dave, uh, Jesse, did you want to talk about that for a second? <laughs> David? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't have as much to say about this one as I did about Pharaoh, but I definitely think, I mean, look, we, we get an insight into pretty much David's entire life from you know, like the age of what twelve, all the way to his death, we we have like a fairly concise history of his entire life. So we get to see the highs and the lows. Uh, we get to see his triumphs as well as his failures, of which there are many um, of both. Uh, I, you know, one of the interesting things about David is he has this very uh, almost um, what was I going to say like very high highs, very low lows with God and with his journey with God and with his enemies Mm. and all that sort of thing. Um, 
So yes, as you said, Josh, he is unique in that in that sense. You know, we don't get that from even Abraham. You know, we don't really get that sort of insight into the soul of the man uh, as we do with David and and as you said with Solomon because Solomon kind of continues that tradition. Um, mm. But I, you know, I don't know. I, I find I find David to be interesting because he he definitely struggles with God. So that's definitely something which is in the vein of his forebears. You know, the people that struggle that wrestle with God. Um, he doesn't ever really call out God like God, you suck. Like I don't really like you. He he very much is he's in the vein of, you know, everything is good and bad and all that in between. But he's he definitely has this reverence for God throughout the highs and the lows. Yeah, like he'll say stuff like, God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. But he'll still refer to God quite highly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I personally think his, the reason his response to God and understanding of grace and the heart of God, I think it comes from his, his like hero origin story. I think he had such humble beginnings, um, the family that he came from. Um, I mean, even though it's like a good, good Jewish bloodline and stuff, it's he, he his um, you know, he was the youngest, seemingly the scrawniest or something. Yeah, like he wasn't even presented when the opportunity came when they were looking for, um, you know, a new, new one to go and face Goliath and yeah, possible, possible king kingship, um, over Israel that kind of thing. Like that was never he wasn't even considered for that. Yeah, which. If you're the father, it kind of makes sense. It's like all these older brothers, why would you pick the last one? It makes no sense. That's totally against tradition. So like, I mean, there is an element of it makes sense, but it, it does also seem kind of slack of the dad. But <laughs> I do I do reckon that David is kind of like the Captain America of ancient Israel. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you know? yeah, now that you mentioned it, pretty similar stories. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Even down it. to the Nazis, you know? <laughs> What? <laughs> Even down to the serum, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, David becomes real swole. Imagine that. Just like beats up Goliath. <laughs> um, but he um, but he also spent like, he also seems to have spent a lot of time by himself out in the field. And he was naturally a quite a poetic and creative person by the yeah. looks of the story. Yeah. And like that's very heavily noted about his character. Maybe others were too, but it, it wasn't noted really in many others. So yeah, um, I think the way he could like poetically write and sing to God, I think that had a major influence on, on his interpretation and understanding of God's heart. And also yeah. that combined with the humble beginnings. And then you combine that with the fact that so much was written about him because he ended up becoming king. I think you get this real incredible atmosphere for a big and beautiful understanding of the heart of God, even mm. in these crazy highs and crazy lows. Um, but you also get it well documented, which is yeah. just, it's not really, it doesn't really happen with anyone else. But I think also David, there's a reason he got the title of man after God's own heart. Yeah. Um, like all these different heroes have different, um, different titles and names, you know, like father, father of nations, Abraham, yeah. Um, Jacob became like the one who wrestled with God and he began the whole like that whole tradition really with Israel. Like stuff like that. There's there's different titles that got around and David seems to always be attributed to the man after God's own heart. Yeah. And I I personally think and this is something I want to do more study into personally about like how creativity impacts discipleship. Ooh. Um, 
Yeah, because I think I think in the life of David there is something, and I think we see it a lot in modern times too. Yeah, that using like worshiping in creative ways often has large impact, and, and participating in creating worship or participating in creating, um, I don't know, things that other people can use to pursue God. Mm. It seems to have a deep, profound impact on everybody, every disciple. Like they seem to grow exponentially in their walk with God when they're being creative for God. So I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure Shelly Poole will listen to that and she'll be, she'll come after me with all these great comments and wisdom (laughs) on it too. But it is something I've been thinking about lately. And I think this question has really brought it to the forefront of my mind that I think, I personally think that's why. So that's my reasoning. I don't know. Sorry, I've been talking for a little while. Jesse, did you have anything to add? No, couldn't have said it better myself, mate. (laughs) Okay. Um, our, uh, I think our, our last question that we're going to tackle for today um, is I think the first question that we got, but we kept it for last because it is by far um, the longest and probably the most complicated question that we've got in, in a good way. So this is from Sarah Fitzclarence um, via email. And uh, she emailed us fairly early on. I think she was the reason that we decided to do a question and response um, episode as well. And she, this, this is what she said. I won't read it all, but this is basically what she says. Um, I just wanted to dig further into a couple of points. So here are my thoughts. I read Deuteronomy 20. So we've, we referenced Deuteronomy 20 in, I believe, episode two, uh, Finding Grace in uh, the Genocide. And uh, it's basically the part where God sets out a sort of uh, Geneva Convention for Israel and how they are to approach different different warfare sort of situations. So she says, I read that, uh, Deuteronomy 20 and verses 16 to 17 Uh, really stood out to me. So I'll just quickly read Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 to 17. Uh, In the NLT, here's what it says. In those towns that the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession, destroy every living thing. You must completely destroy the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Surely that makes it pretty clear, Sarah says, that God wants the Israelites to do this, regardless of how the writers may have been loosely using the word destroy later on, like after a football match. I've always been very disturbed by the thought of every single person in town being killed, including children, and perhaps even more disturbed that God wanted the Israelites to carry out that action. Surely that much killing and violence isn't good for anyone's psyche. Um, Probably agree. Probably Uh, true, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She goes on to say, it seems messed up or cruel that God wanted the Israelites to do this. If God wanted to remove these people because of their wickedness and corrupting influence, couldn't he wipe them out quickly himself, like in Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, Interesting question. That is interesting. Um, Maybe we'll attack that first because she goes on to talk about a a secondary issue. but maybe we'll just talk about that one first off. Um, so for those of you guys who uh, maybe didn't listen to the first few episodes, which I don't know why you're listening to this, if you didn't or you... <laughs> or, <laughs> why would you listen to the follow-up Q&A? Okay, anyway, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, or if you've just, you've forgotten. Uh, so we talked about how in those episodes, the idea of destroying and killing everything 
it seems very brutal, but there are actually circumstances in the biblical uh, literature that contradicts each other. So, in, for instance, we brought up in one part of, uh, I believe, Joshua, uh, God commands the, well, actually, there's it, God doesn't command, but there is an account of Joshua and his armies wiping out a town. And then just a few chapters later on, we actually see that Joshua goes back to the town uh, and that there are people living there. So we pointed out, well, is is it that one of these uh, sections is wrong? Is somebody lying or is there something else going on? And we went on to talk about how in the uh, Canaanite conquest account, there is often this very hyperbolic language used of very brutal language, kill everything, destroy it all, leave no one le- living, no, leave no one breathing. But actually, um, throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire narrative, we don't see that happening. At least not in every situation. In fact, when you go on from Joshua into Judges, you see the aftermath of this. That actually the Israelites fail to wipe everyone out, and they cause a lot of problems for them in the future. So even if the command was to wipe everybody out, most of the time. Oh, well, I guess it's hard to quantify most of the time, part of the time. Yeah. So, you know, I won't say most of the time, but certainly it doesn't happen the way God supposedly commands it to happen. Um, and Judges is all about the repercussions of that. But I, I, I can tell Sarah is kind of, her her question is really, why would God command the people to do it anyway? You know? Yeah. There, okay, there is an interesting little side note, um, a, a part of the question about, you know, why didn't God just do it himself like Sodom and Gomorrah? Right. Yeah, um, that's kind of, Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah is a pretty unique story in scripture because God literally does the whole thing himself. Um, yeah. There's pretty much just a rescue mission and that's about it. Um, but I, I think it's because the the times are a bit different then. Like what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah was so evil and corrupted, but God didn't have an established nation like he does at this point to take care of that and to go yep. and do anything. So the only way to stop it seemingly was for God to just be like, all right, guess just got to do it myself, you know, like, mm. and so that's, I think that's kind of why, I mean, I, there are other times when God seems to like act, but it's in conjunction with, with his nation at the time, mm. which, which I guess part of it, actually part of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah is that he does act in conjunction with his people because obviously there's Lot and his family getting rescued. So there is a bit of acting in conjunction, but that's kind of the way God works. He works with people. It yeah. carries on to the New Testament where it's got a lot of happier meaning because it's like, yeah, like go and bring change and bring the gospel to the world. Like God wants to use you. Mm. But when it's in this context, it's not as pleasant, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I guess my question that I would ask is what what would our 21st century um, sensibilities recommend as an alternative to God's commandment here? And I know this is uncomfortable for us to consider because, you know, look, I, I don't I don't consider genocide or killing to be okay by any stretch. Nobody really would. At least we, most of us would not even admit that out loud, even if it was against, you know, some pretty vile and terrible people. So there's that. 
But then when you think about the situation that Israel is in, you are a refugee nation. You are going towards a country that is full of people hostile to you and who will wipe you out if they get, get the chance. What is God's What is God's, and what are the Israelites' alternative here? Do they just move in and hope for the best? Do they try to just live their lives in a, you know, peaceful sort of hippie, you know, manner? Do they, do they just trust in God's protection that he's going to erect some sort of invisible barrier over them and nobody's going to be able to get in and they're just going to live their lives free from the corrupt, corrupting influence of these, these nations, which we've already established are, extremely corrupt they practice some pretty horrible things and as a society are fairly debased i as even as a 21st century person and somebody who does not condone killing or murder (laughs) or anything like that because why would i um i can't find any better alternative and i feel like that even though that's probably an unsatisfactory answer to some people, I feel like that's the only answer. Because as you said before, Josh, God works alongside people. Um, and, and God, by the way, God doesn't actually actively condone war. Like he doesn't put his rubber stamp of approval on it um, explicitly. And you might be able to find a proof text to try and prove me wrong. But think about the biblical story. When we get to David, who we just discussed, you know, David actually wants to build God a temple, even though he's a man after God's own heart. What does God say to David? He says, no, you are a man of war. You are a man with blood on your hands. Leave it to somebody else. And we see that Solomon is the one who builds God a temple. Solomon is a a man who is not warlike. He is not a warrior. So even in that sense, we see that, you know, God wants to kind of distance himself from um, the, the 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 people who are warriors, does God use David in his warfare sort of mindset, and you know what he's been given to be able to bring victory for Israel and glory to to Yahweh? Yeah, of course he does. But I don't think he puts his rubber stamp of approval on it and says, "Yeah, the war is good, and you should kill people, and that's a great thing to do." I think, yeah, because he's not like go wild, do whatever you want, you know, like wage yeah. war with anybody. It's very exactly. explicit times when he's like, okay, you have to do it now, but don't do it with it, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, as, as we talked about in that episode before, um, did these ancient cultures have the same restraint when it comes to ancient warfare as God actually puts in place for these relates? No, no, not at all. Um, we even see throughout history, far later, raping and pillaging is just the norm. You know, mm. many people have done atrocious things in the name of war. When you're at war, you do whatever. But actually here, got, and again, it's we as 21st century people, we want to be like, well, any violence is bad, but God's working with these people. He's getting them on a journey. He's leading them towards a, a better ideal. And um, even if it's not, the way that we would want it to be, um, the social conventions that he institutes with the Israelites, it really hints at 
God is leading these guys to a, a greater ideal, a higher ideal than any of their neighbors had in mind. Mm. And I, I, we have to remember too, this land was rightfully Israel's, like God's people. It was Abraham's first. Um, like that's that's the reality of this land. And then these other nations moved on when they shouldn't have. Like I, they kind of took advantage of a bad situation and yep. took over the land and then did all their horrible practices in that land. Yep. And so God is trying to give his people their land back, mm. um, which of course creates all kinds of, some people don't like to hear that kind of thing. That's just a, the context of the story. But there were these, um, it was kind of in the particular nations that that this command was given to, to like totally wipe them out. And from my understanding reading of it, they seem to be the most corrupted ones because in verse 10 of this same chapter, you actually see like when you march up to attack a city, make it make its people an offer of peace. And if they accept and open their gates, all the people it, sh- um, it shall um, be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. So they're like, so if they refuse the peace, then you can engage in battle. So there's like, there's offers of mercy even within this and grace yep. within this that it's like, okay, like some people, yeah, you, you can just bring them in and they can they can just work for a living and become a part of the nation as laborers. And but then there were other nations where that just wasn't an option. And it's yep. I think a select few. Yeah. Right. And by the way, on the Sodom and Gomorrah point, I I think we would probably find it just as problematic if God had rained <laughs> fire and brimstone down on the Perizzites and Jebusites and Hittites and Canaanites and Amorites. I, you know, I, I think we would be still asking the same questions, maybe even worse. Like, is is that what God just does? And I like that you just mentioned before, Josh, it's it's like we don't see this happen with other cities throughout. It's just like this one situation. Yeah, that was kind of like the flood and, and that. Yeah. And they're yeah. kind of, oh, I guess you could say the closing of the Red Sea too, in maybe. a way. Yeah. Like, yeah, there, there are a couple of early circumstances. But once they're an established nation, they kind of do most of it themselves. God assists, like, you know, the sun standing still or sure. um, driving out nations with hornets or whatever. Like, it's. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, pretty interesting stuff that happens <laughs> like that killer that bees of bloodshed. Yeah. Killer, killer, <laughs> killer wasps, is it, of 2020? <laughs> yeah, the killer wasps. Can't wait. 2020 just keeps getting better and better, right? Oh, yeah. All right, so Sarah Sarah goes on, uh, second part of her question. She says, I also wondered about verses 19 and 20 when it talks about not cutting down fruit trees because they can eat the fruit. I wondered about the necessity of slaughtering all the flocks and herds since they would not they would have been a valuable asset too, right? Seems a waste to kill them since I doubt sheep and cows had managed to become mentally corrupted too. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> um, a sheep's a sheep, right? Some contacts that I'm a particularly sensitive person who refused to colour in pictures of lambs on offering altars as a kid in Sabbath school. So any potentially unnecessary violence really gets to me. I like that. Um, I like that that part of the end. <laughs> she wouldn't colour it in. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. She's definitely taking a stance against against violence. And again, like not a bad thing, but I think that, again, that shows sort of where we collectively are at as a 21st century Western um, audience uh, reading the Bible, like these are our values. You know, vi- we we are repelled by violence because we don't experience violence on a day to day basis. So it bothers us, I think, more when it's real mm. and not just something that we see on TV or in a movie. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's actually really interesting. It's totally you would never hear of something. I mean, mind you, you wouldn't have coloring pictures, <laughs> the coloring books or whatever, <laughs> hundreds of years ago. But yeah, um, well, I guess a few hundred. Yeah, anyway, but the, you you would have just grown up seeing seeing blood and and violence yeah. in pretty much every part of the world. So it's we're we're in a strange place where we're not used to it. And yep. why we have so much trouble with reading, particularly the Old Testament with this kind of stuff. Well, even the New Testament with this kind of stuff. But yeah, um, yeah pretty interesting. Mm. Um, there, are, yeah. The oh, oh, I just want to touch on the the livestock again. This is there are instances in the Old Testament where I'm pretty sure the lives it's okay for them to take the livestock and just take it and absorb it into Israel and then I'm sure yeah. there are other instances I should yeah I should have looked this up I just kind of thought about it then no but, but then there's there are- so many there's so many instances God is definitely not consistent throughout the whole like there are certain instances where it's okay and certain instances where it's like let's slaughter them yeah I'm sure there's some interesting theories around it I I couldn't find I don't know yeah I I, I should, yeah Sorry, Sarah. I should have looked that up. I just thought about it then, <laughs> that part of the question. But there are definitely instances where they're spared and and absorbed into Israel, and then there are other times where they're not. I don't yep. know why. Maybe here's a fun little theory that is totally from nowhere. Just it could be cool. It could be because that there were particular livestock that were like diseased. Yeah. Maybe because of various practices of particular ancient nations. And maybe, I don't know why God wouldn't explain that, but, you know, maybe he didn't have to. He's just like, yeah, those ones, mm. don't touch them, just destroy them. Those <laughs> ones, keep them there, they're fine. Yeah. You know, where yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, those ones actually have mad cow disease. Probably don't, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, Yeah, for uh, sure. Knows? I don't know, maybe maybe there was something like that. If but, we accept but- the interpretation that these people were corrupt, then it would definitely follow that many of them probably didn't practice very good um, cleanliness uh, procedures when it came to their their food. Yeah, that is one possible solution. Not research at all. That's totally off the top of my head. I was just kind of thinking about reading that. So. But it is I'm- gospel, just so you know. All right, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> uh, but as for the trees... Uh, there's a really interesting paragraph from a commentary I was reading just before that we thought it'd be fun to read about this commentary. Like the last part of um, Deuteronomy, did we read it before? No. Nah. Uh, uh, okay. I'll, go for I'll it. just read the. I'll just read the um, the part she's referring to. Deuteronomy chapter twenty verses nineteen and twenty. When you lay siege to a city for a long time. By the way, this is really random. This comes. This is. <laughs> I would I would give you the context, but the context doesn't make any sense. It's just like giving all this war stuff, and then all of a sudden yep. it just goes into oh yeah, and just sort of side note about the trees. Consider the um, trees. Yeah, when you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. Really kind of random couple of verses, um, but this commentary I read, the New American Commentary, actually has a really awesome little couple of a uh, little awesome paragraph about it. Um, I'd link it in the show notes, but you can't. So, uh, but yeah, it's from the New American Commentary. If you want to read it for yourself, 
Um, it says, so the war manual ends with the most curious and at first blush irrelevant paragraph about the treatment of trees in a time of siege. It does provide practical information about the preservation of fruit trees for their nutritional value and allows for the use of others to build siege works. Uh, the real thrust of the passage, however, is to contrast the tree with humankind, as we saw in verse 19, the second half, where it says, anyway. Um, it, it is only humans, ironically, the image of God and the crown and glory of creation, who sin against the Creator in such egregious ways as to call upon themselves divine judgment. The innocent tree, tainted as it is by the fall of humankind, is nevertheless not culpable and should therefore be spared. No more graphic depiction of the awful calamity brought by sin could be imagined. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's almost like that there's like a a commentary on like ecology and, you know, preservation of nature and all that sort of thing. Yeah. It's like look at the innocence of the tree. Why should they suffer for our wars and that kind yeah. of like that's a it's a really interesting thing. I I would never have picked that up. I don't think just yeah. myself reading it. Uh, maybe if I was at the moment, definitely in my current, <laughs> but now I don't know. I yeah. find it a super interesting little, yeah, yeah. Just this little picture right there at the end of what this person recall. Like it's essentially the war manual in my translation. So and there you go, Sarah. Going to war. Yeah. So Sarah, if you if you are kind of confused and upset about all the violence in deuteronomy then you can at least know that god cares about the trees he you know <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of a it's kind of a tender moment in a very strange sea of commands and yeah it's almost like the it's almost like the author doesn't really like the war as much mm. as we don't you know what i mean like we but they're in a totally different circumstance they're like well this is just reality this is this is what war looks like this is what we've got to do yeah, but then the heart thinks about, okay, uh, so what's going to happen when we're going to get a war? We're going to have all these people, and we're going to have to build siege we weapons. So we're probably going to have to cut down this many trees. Yeah, man, we're going to have to cut down that many trees. That's sad. They don't do anything. They don't deserve this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean it's, it's like a yeah. really interesting little way to end a chapter on such hectic war. And even think about like modern warfare, like World War One, World War Two. I don't know if you've been to any memorials or any places where there was warfare, you'll see photos of just like devastated countryside of like the dirt completely kicked up, trees just strewn everywhere, mud, yeah. dirt, sludge. It's not a nice thing. It def completely devastates anywhere. Yeah, the land the land suffers with us. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of a nice moment where in the midst of all this sort of going to war commentary, you have this little this little bit on, well, just be kind to the trees because, well, they they didn't do anything to deserve this, so why should yeah. they be punished? Yeah. Mm. I love, this is what I love about the Bible. It is so full of just these just it, insane little things you never would think would be in there, but if you just scratch a yeah. bit below the surface, you just these things just pop out to you. It jumps and out and it completely takes you off, off, yeah, off guard. Totally, yeah. yeah. I did not expect anything about ecology to pop up when we <laughs> when we launched. Uh, hey, what what questions do you have about grace in the Old Testament? 
did not think I'd be sitting there being like, man, think about the trees. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. Well, um, Sarah, I hope that that helped in some ways. Again, as we said at the top, we don't have all the answers, but uh, hopefully some of this helped a little bit and uh, it uh, shone some some light on what is admittedly a fairly confusing and uh, impenetrable part of the scriptures, um, at least from our perspective where we're sitting. So uh, thank you, Sarah, and thank you, everybody who sent in your questions. Uh, if we do another series like this, we might do a question and response episode depending on what it is. Um, I don't know. I found this really fun, and it, I found it a lot more fun as well knowing that, uh, that uh, a bunch of people had some questions and we got to engage with that. So thank you, yeah. everybody. Sorry it took so long after we finished the series. We didn't really think, we didn't think about it. So now we know that next time if we do a series like this, it would just be cool to maybe include yeah. a Q&A right from the get-go. So, Absolutely. so we can prepare to do it at the end. Um, yeah. But hey, of course, if you have any feedback or any thoughts on this episode, we would love to know what you think. So uh, make sure you get in contact with us. The best way to get all things Burn the Haystack is burnthehaystack.org. Awesome. And uh, if this is your first time listening to the uh, to the podcast, uh, welcome. And uh, if you haven't already subscribed, we just encourage you to hit that subscribe button on whatever podcasting app that you prefer. We're on basically everything. Um, and if you'd like to help us out to uh, get more reach and more exposure, leaving us a review on iTunes particularly is, is super helpful. So we'd love it if you did that. Or you can buy some merch. How cool That's is that? Right. You could have like a shirt or a jumper or a long sleeve shirt and get the cool Burn the Haystack logo. It's the best way at the moment to financially support the show. And also you can represent Burn the Haystack to all your friends. Absolutely. So if you want to buy our merch, you can either go to our, our website and just click on the link that says merch or in the show notes, there will be a link as well. So just go to the show notes if you're in iTunes or whatever else and click that button. If you're in Spotify, you won't be able to click on links, but uh, pretty much any other podcatching app will allow you to do that. So yeah, represent. And if you guys uh, actually do buy merch, send us a picture and uh, we may feature you on our Instagram story or uh, on Facebook. Yeah, that'll be awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. Stay awesome. That is Josh and Jesse out. Thank <laughs> you.